Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist and your source for all the latest news and information relating to mental health. On this show, you'll hear all about anything to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All of that without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way trying to better educate the general public about mental illness and reduce the stigma of having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome back, folks. This is the December 17th edition for 2014 for Psychiatry Today, and this is going to be the last show of 2014. I'm going to take the next two weeks off. Uh, that would be the 24th, Christmas Eve, and the 31st, New Year's Eve. And I will be back with you again with a new show come Wednesday, January the 7th. But for today, a new show and uh, the leading topic for tonight's show is that middle-aged women have the highest rates of depression. One in eight middle-aged women in the United States has depression, according to a new report. That means that women ages 40 to 59 have the highest rate of depression, it's 12.3% of any age group based on age and gender in the United States. This according to a report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. Now, in all other age groups as well, women had higher rates of depression than men did. Now that doesn't come as any surprise to me. Uh, it's been known for many, many decades that there's always been more women who suffer from depression than men. The ratio is about three women to every one man when it comes to depression. Now, among Americans ages 12 and older, 9.5% of females and 5.6% of males had moderate or severe depression during the previous two-week period, according to the report, which was based on data gathered from 2009 through 2012. Depression, as you know, is a serious medical condition that can affect not only people's mood, but also their cognitive functions. That means things like concentration, memory, decision-making abilities, and it also affects physical well-being. And the symptoms can range from mild to severe. And although there are various approaches for treating depression, studies have shown that a combination of medication and psychological therapy, or psychotherapy or counseling, works best to treat severe depression. However, we also know that many people with depression do not get any treatment only 35% of people who had severe depression reported having seen a mental health professional in the past year. 
Now, in this latest study, researchers evaluated whether the participants had depression by conducting in-person interviews and questioning about symptoms of depression. Depression can affect both the personal and professional areas of a person's life. In the study, nearly 90% of people with severe depressive symptoms reported having difficulty at home, with work, or in their social activities. Almost half of the people who had mild depression reported having such difficulties. The report also found that 15% of people who live in poverty had depression, meaning that they were more than twice as likely to have depression as people living above the federal poverty level who have a depression rate of 6.2%. The rate of depression generally increased with age, with 5.7% of youth ages 12 to 17 reporting having the condition, but 9.8% of adults ages 40 to 59 saying the same. However, people ages 60 and over had a lower rate of depression, 5.4%, than people in other age groups. These estimated depression rates may even be lower than the actual rates, and that's because people with depression might be slightly more likely to decline to participate in the surveys used for the report. Moreover, people who live in mental health facilities who may have higher rates of depression were not included in the study, and people who are being successfully treated for depression were not identified as depressed. Well, all those factors certainly are going to skew these statistics. <clears throat> but clearly the, the major finding that the highest rate of depression of any age or gender group was middle-aged women uh, certainly is disturbing. And uh, I can say from the experience in my own practice over the years, certainly not surprising. Uh, the average patient in my practice is a woman uh, between ages 40 to 59. So there you have it. Uh, and I, I dare say that's probably what most of my colleagues see in their practices too. Uh, so, you know, what uh, we psychiatrists see in our offices bears out the results of this CDC survey on the demographics of depression in the United States. It's important to keep in mind if you suffer from it yourself, or if you know someone who does, to keep trying to get help for it, even if you've tried before and have not been successful, or if it's someone close to you, uh, to keep encouraging them to try to get help, because there is help out there, and even if it has not gone well, uh, you should still keep trying. Well, <clears throat> since we are coming up on the new year, and since it is fairly typical that people will try to make New Year's resolutions. Although for some reason, I don't know if it's just me, I have not heard as much hype about those so far this season as yet. I wonder if you have. Well, regardless, I came across this article. It's titled, 
Your willpower is there. How to break a bad habit. Five ways to rid yourself of pesky bad behaviors. So I thought, well, this is timely if people are thinking about their upcoming New Year's resolutions. And those of you who are regular listeners know that I always mention in the introduction to the show how uh, one of the things I like to talk about is how to rid yourself of bad habits. So I said, well, let's go over this and see what helpful information there is in this article. So it starts off by saying, are you that guy at brunch who can't stop playing Candy Crush? No wonder why they only mention brunch. It's all the time. Or have you ever reached for another potato chip only to realize that you had eaten the entire bag in one sitting? Worst of all, do you acknowledge you have a bad habit but can't seem to get rid of it? Why we keep doing things that hurt us is a fascinating question because we normally learn from experience. This is according to Richard O'Connor, author of Rewire, Change Your Brain to Break Bad Habits, Overcome Addictions, Conquer Self-Destructive Behavior. He says the automatic non-thinking brain knows how to drive and to type and to breathe. That part of the brain really does learn from experience, so we don't repeat the same mistakes twice, except in certain circumstances, like when we're not paying attention, or when we have some hidden motive that's keeping us in this self-destructive habit. In his book, O'Connor draws on the idea that we have two brains, a conscious decision-making one and an automatic one, that quickly gobbles up the potato chip while the conscious self is distracted. So in order to kick a bad habit, you have to consciously catch your autopilot self through it, which is not always easy. Remember, degrees of self-destructive behavior vary, as does the time, effort, and focus it takes to change that behavior. So here are O'Connor's tips to getting rid of pesky bad habits. First, practice willpower. People believe they lack willpower, but willpower is not something you either have or don't, like blue eyes. It's a skill that can be developed by telling yourself no, removing yourself from the temptation or reminding yourself there's a bigger reward if you don't give in. These kinds of bargains contribute to training the brain so it becomes more easy. He goes on to suggest to try replacement therapy. The real secret is not to try to break a bad habit, but to learn to do something else instead. Our brains are wired to keep biting nails or procrastinating, so we're used to it. It becomes the default mode. Instead of going on a battle against procrastination, you should reframe it. The trick is to focus on a positive activity you feel good about. And he says to be realistic when setting goals. I agree, this is very, very important. Too too often people set unrealistically 
high goals for themselves, and guess what? They're bound to be uh, unable to reach them and therefore disappointed and discouraged and stop trying. Okay, well, he says, your standards are very important, and if they're too high, you can give up before you start. There are two types of goals you can set. The overarching goal is where you want to end up, but be aware. It can be motivational to imagine yourself 30 pounds lighter, but you can also use those kinds of goals to beat yourself up every time you fail. Operational goals or concrete steps for the next day, week, or month will help you reach the overarching goal. In other words, using weight as the example, focus on losing two pounds each week, not the total of 30. All right, we're going to take a commercial break. We'll have more with his tips for breaking bad habits. When we come back, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Hello, I'm Ray Bowman. I'm really looking forward to our new show, Food and Farm, brought to you every Friday at noon on America's Web Radio by FeedstuffsFoodLink.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you were able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will continue to rise while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We are committed to working with you. We specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage. And we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. And we're talking about getting rid of bad habits as a prelude to those of you who may be making New Year's resolutions at this time of year. And again, the, uh, the book that's the basis of this article is by Richard O'Connor, Rewired, Change Your Brain to Break Bad Habits, Overcome Addictions, Conquer Self-Destructive Behavior. Now, continuing with the fourth of his five tips about getting rid of bad behaviors, make your goals public. Talking with other people about how you want to change can be very helpful. It can also give you motivation when your friends and family help you out by reminding you of your goals. I think this is a very good idea. Talking about it to other people uh, implies some accountability. If you've made it public, that's going to motivate you more to work toward accomplishing those goals because now others have the expectation 
that you're going to be working toward these things and are going to encourage you, hopefully. And uh, so in, in that case, it makes it more likely that you're going to do the work you need to to reach that goal. And finally, he says, don't sweat the slip-ups. And I also agree, this is very important. The good news from all the brain research is every time you practice a good behavior, you're building up a little network of brain cells that make it much easier to do the same thing the next time. But when you slip up and you go back against the bad habit you're trying to get rid of, you haven't hurt yourself too much. Right, So when those things inevitably happen, instead of beating yourself up about it, just get right back on track right away. Because beating yourself up about it will only lead to your abandoning your effort to make the desired changes and <clears throat> going to set you back further. So all in all, I have to say good advice. might want to check out the book if you're interested and uh, see if you find it helpful. But if, if not, those tips that we went over certainly could help those of you who are interested in making a news resolution to get rid of a bad habit. You can use smoking as an example of not getting discouraged about the slip-ups. Lots of research has shown that even if people are unsuccessful in their attempts to quit smoking, the more times people try to quit, the greater the likelihood they will eventually successfully quit smoking. So there's a good example of what he's talking about in terms of not sweating the slip-ups. Well, <clears throat> this next article that we're going to go over is a stress and the workplace update for this week on Psychiatry Today. And in a way, perhaps it might also fit in with the idea of making a New Year's resolution because a common New Year's resolution is thinking about changing jobs. That's right. It isn't always, well, I'm going to quit smoking, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to get into shape. But for those of you who are unfortunate enough to be unhappy with their job, Perhaps you're thinking about, wow, this year I really need to get a new job. I'm not happy where I'm working. Well, perhaps one of the reasons that you're not happy with where you're working is your boss. And uh, this article says your horrible boss, if you have one, may be making you sick. While <clears throat> uh, there are certainly stereotypes about bullying bosses and there's even the uh, the sequel to the Horrible Bosses movie out now. Anyone who has experienced this in real life can tell you, uh, or maybe you personally know from experience, that working for a boss who is a bully is no joking matter, and it can even make you ill. <clears throat> uh, Sandy Hershevich, uh a professor and workplace aggression researcher, at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada, says that uh, they have found out that people with bullying bosses are likely to suffer anxiety, emotional exhaustion, depression, and symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And the problem is more common than you might think, affecting roughly 15% of workers 
according to a 2010 analysis. The prevalence of this problem depends on the definition of bullying, of course. If you just ask people how they feel, the numbers soar. 24% said they were current targets of bullying in the latest poll commissioned by the online job site CareerBuilder, which surveyed a representative sample of 3,372 full-time private sector workers across different industries and different company sizes. Respondents said that they had been falsely accused of mistakes, belittled in meetings, yelled at in front of co-workers, excluded from projects or meetings, denied credit for their work, or picked on because of attributes associated with their race, gender, or appearance. Any of that sound familiar? Well, if you're putting up with that, you're at risk for getting sick. This kind of treatment takes a toll. When Dr. Hershevitz reviewed 110 studies conducted over 21 years, she and her colleagues concluded that boss bullying was harder to cope with than sexual harassment. The bullying victims were more stressed out and likely to quit. And researchers studying 40 to 60-year-old employees of the city of Helsinki, Finland, found that people who had been bullied or just observed bullying at work were more likely to be using medications like antidepressants, meaning they were more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression to where it was severe enough that they needed medical treatment for it. Even being subtly left out of conversations can have debilitating effects. Most, though not all, bullying is top-down. In the Career Builder survey, 45% of the self-declared targets pointed to their boss and another 25% to a person higher up than them in the organization. Confronting your bully can work sometimes. In Career Builder's survey, almost half of the victims reported that they tried to talk things out, with slightly less than half of that group seeing success. That's certainly discouraging. Those who were bold and brave enough to try to talk it out, slightly less than half having some success. For some, the bully responded by upping the firepower. In other words, by making the bullying even more severe. And that's exactly uh, the victim's worst fear, I would think, and why they would probably hesitate to confront the bully. About a third sought help from a human resources department, but the majority said no action was taken. And that reflects what I have heard from my patients over the years who have told me that they felt like they're being harassed and bullied at the workplace. Uh, It is seldom the case that going to HR is helpful. Much research shows that targets are much more likely to leave their jobs or transfer 
than the bullies. Uh, that is very discouraging indeed, but that is the reality in the workplace nowadays. Hopefully in the future this will change. Uh, if we think about bullying in the workplace, this is where sexual harassment was before the Anita Hill story took hold and shone a bright light on sexual harassment in the workplace, which in turn led to successful lawsuits about sexual harassment and laws and rules and regulations to protect workers against sexual harassment. Workplace bullying is now going to be <clears throat> the next big change that will take place in uh, the workplace environment in terms of what workers will be expected to be protected from. Uh, but it's uh, going to take some time before it reaches uh, the equivalent situation uh, where sexual harassment is no longer tolerated in the workplace. All right, well, so those of you who are sick from working with a bullying, abusive boss, best of luck to you in terms of trying to find a new job in 2015. All right, <clears throat> next up on tonight's show, uh, we've been following the story of the massacre that took place in Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, and the mental health angle, uh, both from the point of view <clears throat> of examining the very serious mental health issues of the shooter, Adam Lanza, who was not given recommended treatment uh, and this uh, partly in blame both the school and his parents. Uh, but here is an article that I want to go over with you that is looking at the mental health of the residents of Newtown. Okay, lest they be forgotten in all of this, the uh, survivors of the massacre and uh, the residents of Newtown who were otherwise affected by events there. Their mental health problems are still emerging. Anxiety, depression, guilt, sleeplessness, marital strife, drug and alcohol abuse. Two years after the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School, the scope of the psychological damage to children, parents, and others is becoming clear, and the need for treatment is likely to persist a long time. Here it is two years later, and it's still hard to deal with. But you didn't want to know me two years ago. That, according to Beth Hegarty, a Sandy Hook mother, who happened to be inside the school that day with her three daughters, all of whom survived. She and her girls are among the thousands of people in the close-knit town of 27,000 who have taken advantage of counseling and other programs made available through millions in grants and donations. All right, well, let's take a break, and we'll have more on the mental health impact of Newtown uh, survivors and others. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? 
Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about the mental health toll taken by the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre two years after the fact. The uh, second anniversary of the shooting rampage just passed recently. Um, Agencies have been working to set up a support system for the next 12 to 15 years that will take care of the youngest survivors as they approach adulthood. Mental health officials say the demand for treatment is high, with many people reporting substance abuse, relationship troubles, disorganization, depression, overthinking or inability to sleep, all related to the December 14, 2012 attack, in which a young man killed 20 children and six educators before committing suicide. And some of the problems are just now coming to the surface. Joseph Irardi, the Newtown's school superintendent, said, We found the issues are more complex in the second year. A lot of people were running on adrenaline the first year. The uh, family we referred to before, the Hegarty children, they have had trouble sleeping and difficulty with loud noises and crowds. Whenever they leave the house, they look for places they can hide in case something bad happens. These are classic signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. In February, a school counselor suggested the family seek help because one of the daughters wasn't paying attention in class. She was staring at the doorway. Hegarty and her children have been receiving support from Newtown's 
Resiliency Center, an organization formed after the shooting that has seen rising demand for its offerings, which include art therapy, music therapy, and play therapy. Hegarty said the programs have helped her become more even-keeled. She says, I was super reactive to everything. I would fly off the handle on a whim. I was emotional. I couldn't handle crowds or loud noises. She took cover under a desk during the shooting while the principal and the psychologist she had been meeting with died. She says, for my girls, there is less running down the hallway in the middle of the night and climbing into my bed. They want to go more places instead of staying at home all the time. Those are encouraging signs for her children. Newtown has received about $15 million in grants from the United States Education Department and the United States Justice Department to support its recovery. The Newtown Sandy Hook Community Foundation, which oversees the biggest pot of private donations made to Newtown, has about $4 million left after paying out more than $7 million to the families of the 26 victims and other children who were in the same classrooms but survived. Newtown Youth and Family Services, the main mental health agency, has quadrupled its counseling staff, adding 29 positions in the months following the shootings. The executive director, Candace Bohr, said the federal grant money that recently came through will help cover its costs. Jennifer Barahona, director of the foundation overseeing the private dollars, said the group has been spending about $60,000 a month on one-on-one -on -one counseling for people who have no insurance or whose insurers won't cover such treatment. Shame on those insurers, I say. She said more people are reaching out for help every day. The Newtown school system is starting a long-term program to teach young people from kindergarten through high school how to handle their feelings. It is also setting up a mental health center at the middle school in January to help those who were affected by the tragedy while in elementary school. Teachers have been trained to identify students who might have mental health problems. Melissa Brimer, Director of Terrorism and Disaster Programs at the UCLA Duke National Center for Child Traumatic Stress, has been consulting with Newtown to develop a plan to make sure the mental health needs are met for another 12 to 15 years. Ms. Hegarty said she struggles with survivor guilt, but the Resiliency Center has helped her and her children. She says, are we 100%? No. But will we ever be 100%? We might not be. <clears throat> well, it's encouraging to hear that there's a lot of help being made available to the people of Newtown. There's certainly no shortage of healing that still needs to take place. Next up on tonight's show, this research 
made a splash in the mainstream media, and uh, I wanted to talk to you about it, give you my own take. It's about how a study found that when it comes to meanness and bullying among children in school, while girls have a very bad reputation for being mean, you know, the whole expression mean girls, it's actually boys who are more mean than girls. That's right. The stereotypes are that boys are more physically aggressive when it comes to bullying, whereas girls are more emotionally and socially abusive in terms of their bullying, things like um, marginalizing other girls socially, ostracizing them, uh, damaging their reputation, and, and so on. And not only that, but the study that we're talking about was done right here in Georgia at the University of Georgia in Athens. So this research team from UGA is debunking the myth of the so-called mean girl because their new research has found that boys use relational aggression, that is, malicious rumors, social exclusion and rejection, in order to harm or manipulate others more often than girls. This longitudinal study, meaning it followed these kids' behaviors over a long period of time, was published online in the journal called Aggressive Behavior. Yes, that's the name of the journal, believe it or not. Followed a cohort of students from middle high school, from sorry, from middle school to high school, and they found that at every grade level along that way, boys engaged in relationally aggressive behavior more often than girls. A team led by UGA professor Pamela Orpinas analyzed data collected from 620 students randomly selected from six Northeast Georgia school districts. Students who participated in the study completed yearly surveys, which allowed the UGA researchers to identify and group them in distinct trajectories for relational aggression and victimization as they progressed from grades 6 to 12. Overall, they found relational aggression to be a very common behavior. Almost all of the students surveyed, 96%, had passed a rumor or made a nasty comment about someone over the course of the seven-year study. <clears throat> so this is really extremely prevalent behavior, and it's the exception that a kid doesn't engage in it in some form or fashion, as opposed to the rule, as sad as that might be. Experiences of victimization were found to be universal as well. Over 90% of the students reported that they had been victims of relational aggression at least once. The analysis found that students followed three developmental trajectories of perpetration and three similar trajectories of victimization, low, moderate, and high declining that is, very high in middle school and declining in high school. And I, it's interesting that they found that to be a specific pattern because I have often observed that as well 
that the relational harassment and bullying peaks in middle school and it declines somewhat in high school. When examining how these trajectories differed by gender, the data revealed some unexpected results. Significantly more boys than girls fell into the two higher trajectories for relational aggression perpetration, while more girls than boys fell into the two higher trajectories for victimization. We have books, websites, and conferences aimed at stopping girls from being aggressive, as well as a lot of qualitative research on why girls are relationally aggressive. But oddly enough, there isn't enough research on why boys would be relationally aggressive because people have assumed it's a girl behavior. Studies on relational victimization are uncharted territory in scientific literature. Much more research is needed to understand why girls are more likely than boys to be targets of relational aggression or to perceive certain acts as aggressive. While the study may call for more study on mean boys and why they behave the way they do, the findings ultimately emphasize a need to include boys and girls equally in programs aimed at reducing relational aggression. In the end, we need to ask how we can focus on increasing the positive interactions among kids rather than the negative ones, because the kids that students admire are often the ones who are fun and positive about others. So there you have it. Girls are actually more likely to be victimized by relational aggression, and boys are more likely to be perpetrators of such aggression. <clears throat> well, this one study may shatter those stereotypes, but I think it will take more follow-up research to uh, see if these conclusions can be considered definitive. Uh, however, this study is very interesting, the design is excellent, and it raises some important questions uh, about these gender stereotypes when it comes to relational aggression. We're going to take another commercial break and have more mental health-related news. When we come back, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Hi, I'm Ray Bowman, hoping you'll join us each Friday at noon for our new show, Food and Farm, brought to you by FeedStuffsFoodLink.com, only on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's web radio. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. 
Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that's individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you'll not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peace Tree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. And next up on tonight's show, autism is a diagnosis that is often very difficult to make, and it's a little understood disease. We don't know enough about the causes. There are treatments for it, but unless they're started very early on in life and very aggressive, there's often very little that can be done to help kids who have severe forms of autism. So a way to diagnose it better would absolutely be huge in terms of uh, improving the prognosis for kids who suffer from it. Now, there may be a way to do that. Some researchers have found a way to see how the brain responds to hugs. And this may be one way to give us a clue uh, of, of a method to diagnose autism. So thanks to this new research, someday we may be able to see autism in the same way we see a broken ankle on an x-ray. Now, all psychiatric disorders, including autism, are currently diagnosed based on a clinical behavioral assessment, a process that's highly nuanced and highly subjective. To assess for autism in toddlers, parents are asked, if you point at something across the room, does your child look at it? And does your child play pretend or make believe? Anyone with a young child knows that these types of general questions are very difficult to conclusively answer. But now, Carnegie Mellon University researchers have created a potentially decisive way to diagnose autism and other psychiatric disorders with startling 97% accuracy by examining how our brains respond to the thought of a hug. It's common knowledge that people with autism act differently in social interactions than those without. Their ability to tune in to the thoughts and feelings of others does not develop in the same way as their neurotypical peers. This means there is something different in their thought processes. So therefore the difference has to be in the brain. Now this research team discovered 
what they think is the exact part of the brain and thus the area of thought creation in which those with autism process information differently. And this difference can be seen on a simple brain scan. Brain images illustrate how the brain representations of a social interaction, to hug in this example, differ between neurotypical uh, or normal participants and those with autism. <clears throat> the neural activation for hug uh, is shown in the autism group not having any activation in the brain's posterior midline region. This is an area of the brain which contributes to the representation of the self. The images show the group average activation patterns, the brain representations of the social interactions in individual participants were sufficiently distinctive to allow participants to be identified as belonging to the autism where this area of the brain was not activated and those of the control group where the thought or, rep or, or inner representation of a hug was activated, they could make this distinction with 97% accuracy. Now the research was published on December 2nd in the journal PLOS One. 34 subjects, 17 high-functioning autistic adults and 17 neurotypical adults were given functional MRI brain scans while being asked to think about 16 different words describing various social interactions, such as hug, compliment, kick, and insult. Whereas the control subjects showed activity in the part of the brain associated with self-representation, the subjects with autism did not. This means that the autistic individuals envisioned the words and actions being told to them without themselves as a participant in defining the scenario. While the control group saw themselves being hugged, complimented, kicked, and insulted when thinking about these concepts. Furthermore, the research team identified that the more a subject's self-representation is altered, the worse they are at facial recognition-based tasks, which is the hallmark of autism diagnosis and one of the primary indicators for an autistic individual's placement on the autism spectrum. In other words, the more facial recognition an individual can complete, the higher functionality they exhibit on the autism spectrum. It is so hard to characterize psychiatric illness. Sometimes it's easy to pinpoint, but sometimes it's not so easy to characterize the alteration that makes the person with a certain disorder process their world differently and thus behave differently. <clears throat> now, the lead author of the study is not sure what new therapies could be developed around helping those with this disorder of self-representation, but the research can aid our societal understanding of autistic individuals. 
people with autism come off as different and strange and sometimes frightening. This finding shows a biological basis for it. It frames this behavior in terms of understandable biological alterations versus a not understandable, almost mystical force. Now we can see autism and potentially other psychiatric disorders in the same way that we see, as I said before, a broken ankle on an x-ray. Only this time it's a functional MRI scan of the brain. Something previously inaccessible and confusing is now that much more knowable. The research allows an alternate route to diagnosis that is based on objective data as opposed to repeated behavioral analysis, potentially allowing for a whole new contextualization and conversation around not only the diagnosis of autism, but of all psychiatric disorders. Well, I think it is exciting that a brain scan can differentiate autistic individuals from normals with stunning 97% accuracy, and it's not particularly invasive. All they're doing is lying in an fMRI scanner of their brain and being asked to uh, conceptualize a number of different situations. Uh, so that type of a physical diagnosis of a psychiatric disorder uh, certainly would revolutionize the diagnosis and perhaps even someday the treatment of autism spectrum disorders. Uh, but if similar tests could help differentiate other types of psychiatric problems, uh, I mean, the impact on the field of psychiatry just could not be overstated. That would be absolutely huge. To say it would revolutionize the field doesn't even begin to describe it. So kudos for those researchers at Carnegie Mellon for coming up with this method. Let's hope that <clears throat> these findings can be expanded upon. Now let's take a look at social anxiety disorder. Making friends is often extremely difficult for people with social anxiety, and to make matters worse, people with that disorder tend to assume that the friendships they have are not of the highest quality. The problem with this perception is that it's not necessarily true from the point of view of their friends. New research suggests that people who are impaired by high social anxiety typically think they're coming across much worse than they really are. New study suggests the same is true in their friendships. The study was published in November in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology. People with social anxiety disorder often overestimate how bad their relationships are with friends compared to what the friends say. <clears throat> More than just simple shyness, social anxiety disorder is a recognized psychiatric condition in which those struggling with the affliction often live in fear of meeting new people, passing up social invitations or work opportunities for fear of being rejected, embarrassed, or otherwise singled out as failure. In severe cases, people are virtually homebound by it and utterly disabled. By some estimates, 13% of people in Europe and the United States experience social anxiety disorder. It ranges in severity 
from less severe yet impairing fears of a single situation, most, office, most often public speaking, to fears about interacting with people in general. Based on tests designed to assess friendship quality, study involved a group of 112 participants, each diagnosed as having or not having social anxiety disorder, each brought a friend from a non-romantic relationship who agreed to take part in the testing. People with social anxiety disorder report that their friendships are worse, but their friends didn't see it the same way. Their friends are more likely to say something like, it's different but not worse. People with the disorder reported their friendships were significantly worse compared to those without. These misperceptions were stronger and more prevalent among younger participants and in situations where the friendship was relatively new. The friends of those with the disorder did seem to be aware their friends were having trouble and saw the person as being less dominant in the friendship. These findings could play an important role in helping people with social anxiety understand their friendships are not as bad as they think. Helping people form friendships is important. Studies confirm the lack of strong social networks can leave people vulnerable to a host of problems, including disease, depression, even earlier mortality. But social anxiety is treatable. Psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and medication can help. But this study shows they could see that they come across better than they do in their personal relationships and uh, in their specific friendships. So encouraging news for people who suffer that sometimes debilitating disorder. And with that, we're going to wrap up the show, not just for tonight, but for the whole year. So until I get together with you again Wednesday, January 7, 2015, have a wonderful, stress-free holiday season. Thanks for listening, and good night. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just